0: On the phone line with us today is Pastor Yuri Brito. He serves as senior pastor of Providence Church, and I believe he's been there since 2009. Uh, Yuri, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Dan, a real pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I'd delight like to be with you once more.
0: Before we begin, I I was reading about you online, and it turns out you were born in northeastern Brazil and uh, you've lived here in the United States some 25 years. Uh, What's your background? How did you become a a Christian, a believer?
1: I grew up in a pastor's home. In fact, there's a lot of pastors in uh, my family. And uh, one of the things that I told myself as I was growing up is that I would never be a pastor. (laughs) And uh, you know how that story goes. But um, I grew up in a very faithful home, and from my earliest days I remember hearing... Believing, affirming the gospel wholeheartedly through different different phases of my Christian growth, but I don't remember a day where God has not been my Father, where I have not felt the, the love of God, and where I have never experienced the, the the kind of Christian joy. And that's always been a part of who I am. And so. Amen. It's, um, it's difficult to pinpoint these kinds of conversations, but I think the, the the real answer is the answer that I have always known that God has loved me, and I have always sought to live for the sake of the kingdom all my days. It's been a, a wonderful joy. I am um, very blessed to have lived the life I have under the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: I love that answer. That is really... Um preferable that's that's the <laughs> the ideal answer when when god places a covenant child into a home and from the very earliest of days uh he knows the love of god in christ and uh has received his sign etc um today we want to talk a little bit about advent and uh coming up is uh the third sunday in advent today being Saturday, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. What comes to your mind, Pastor Brito, as you work through Advent in your church and the different blessings of Advent that comes to your mind?
1: Well, a couple things come to mind. Uh, The first one is that I am always struck by, as I read through the Scriptures, how much God cared about time. All of us, you know, we all care about time, but to have an intentionality about time, and to look what the Scripture says about time is actually a rather fascinating exercise for the Christian. And um, it didn't really make much of an impact in my life until probably my late teens when I realized, wait a minute, there is something to this in the Scriptures. You know, you remember, of course, we all know the the words of uh, Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. You know, there's a time for peace, for war, for embracing, holding back, for love and for hate and so on. But very rarely do we think about how does God want us to look at time in general? Now, it's, it's, it's one of those questions, Dan, I've always told my, my parishioners and those who inquire about that matter, that it's inescapable. We all think about time, sometimes not intentionally, but we all think about time in some way, and we all have allegiance to time to how um, we are shaped chronologically. Here in America, no one um, no one would say, well, the 4th of July plays no role in the way we think about time, because we we prepare ourselves with uh, hot dogs and hamburgers, <laughs> and um, we don't stop once to think, oh, this is absurd. No, we just treat it as part of who we are as <laughs> Americans. And always been, as we've spoken before, the church would take a primary place in shaping the time of society. So how does a Christian think of time? And so as I think about Advent, I think that the church also provides the world a view of time. And that time is shaped out rather clearly as we follow the paths that our Lord Jesus took from the days before his incarnation in human flesh, his enfleshment, to the days of his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the days after that, as the Church takes on this new work in uh, post-Pentecost. And so that's the one thing that comes to mind, is that we Christians need to give a a greater emphasis on how God views time, and that if God is truly sovereign over all things, over our bodies, over nature, he must then be sovereign over time. And so Advent plays a fundamental role in how this is shaped in our View of time throughout the year.
0: Mm. That's a neat way to come about this. Um, Churches sometimes have certain kinds of celebrations during Advent, Mm -hmm. uh, possibly as simple as um, lighting a candle, (laughs) you know, every every Sunday. um, But what's brought forth is this uh, breaking in of time uh, by. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it easy to forget, even though we're in the midst of this season, is it easy to forget the significance of our Savior Jesus coming? I mean, is it tempting, you know, that they just become words, and then we just mouth these things, and yet we don't fully appreciate the... I mean, this is like an explosion going off in history. This is huge
1: you're absolutely right. That's, it's interesting. I like the way you phrase that because um, we one of the greatest threats I think to Christianity is uh, an idea, and it's called Gnosticism. But in in general, in, in summary, for for the listeners, it essentially means a tendency towards things that are ethereal or abstract. And so, it's it's a very easy thing to say. Oh, yes, I I'll honor this day. Uh, Christmas comes along, and we'll have our festivities, our exchanging of gifts, and um, we don't understand precisely what all that entails. And in some ways, that's a, a, a minor surrender to the spirit of Gnosticism. And what, what the Christian needs to realize is that we are prone to forgetting, as the, the hymn writer says, we're, we're prone to wonder. Mm. And I think one of the things we're, we're prone to, one way we're prone to wonder is we wonder in abstract terms, and so Christianity and its centrality is something that can be lost when we view it through the lens of something that doesn't affect our being, our right. very way of existence. And what's so profound in, uh, in Galatians is that um, the, Paul says that in the fullness of time, under the law, Jesus came. So even Jesus, before eternity passed, it was decreed that he would come in a particular time, It wasn't uh, randomly chosen in the calendar of heaven. It came in a particular time so that time would be forever changed. And so our tendency to forget needs to be enfleshed. And that means that we need to do things in in this season of the church that um, that reflects precisely what we're celebrating. And so if we are exchanging gifts during Christmas, for example, which we will in a few weeks, it's an exchanging of gifts that must have an intentional uh, aspect behind it. Mm. If we're merely exchanging gifts, like every other family in America, uh, we lose our identity as Christians, but if we're exchanging gifts in the context of Jesus was a gift to us, therefore we give to one another, then it adds a layer of significance to that event. And so my desires that the Christian church, individual families, would begin to incorporate traditions that give our children from their earliest days a better context to understand the hope of Christmas and then Christmas itself. So I think that's a few things to keep in mind.
0: Mm. Amen. In the last minute remaining, and you you alluded to children, Um, we Uh love children, God loves children, and as parents... How are we to view our children with respect to the kingdom of God?
1: Yes, I think that's a fundamental issue because I think it's one of the one of the festivities I think our children look forward to the most is obviously Christmas. And they should, you know, <laughs> they should. I've always told people my favorite times of the year are Christmas and Easter. And these, these are moments of wild celebration. We <laughs> shouldn't be hesitant about it at all. We shouldn't be Gnostic about it at all. And I think when we are engaged in this season of the church, our children need to be engaged. And I think this also plays a a fundamental part. I think often we tend to uh, separate the season from children, and it's fundamental that we realize that Jesus, our Lord, came as an infant babe.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, There's this great hymn that says, this infant babe, so few days old, has come to rifle Satan's fold. Amen. Amen. I I, I think so often about this here, and because our children are to be identified with the very spirit of this season, and so they are to sing, which is why "Joy to the World" is almost always our children's favorite Christmas carol. They are to sing. They are to be jubilant. They are to be incorporated. They are to be a part of it because Jesus came as an infant, and later on in His ministry, the infants and the nursing infants and the little children were precisely the ones they called to Himself and identified with the kingdom of heaven. And so our children are, when somebody says, where is the kingdom of heaven? We should look to the the weakest in our midst, the little one, the nursing infant, and say, there he is, (laughs) there she is. And to the little child who is singing joy to the world, who can remember just a a couple lines, there's the kingdom. And uh, that's, to me... Not only are uh, the identifying uh, protagonists of, of the season, but also the ones to whom we p- should point to as examples of how the kingdom looks like. And so, what better season of the church uh, to exemplify that and to incorporate our children into than this um, Advent and uh, upcoming Christmas season?
0: Amen. Beautiful summary. Today, we've been talking with Pastor Yuri Brito. He serves as senior pastor of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. Yuri, if somebody wants to read one of your blogs, where can they go online?
1: You can go to uh, yuribrito.com, that's U-R-I-B-R-I-T-O dot com, where I have a a podcast and um, a host of uh, uh, daily articles on, on issues regarding Advent and Christmas. And So they can always check there, they'll find some new material, hopefully on a regular basis.
0: Very good. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Dan, my pleasure. The Lord bless you.
0: Have you heard of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom? It's composed of volunteers, and the commission has the charter of advancing the U.S. interest of religious freedom. Sounds like a good idea. Yet, this commission was the target of a Senate bill that sought to expand the Commissioner's Charter into more of a policing mechanism of religious practice, in effect to become a law enforcement watchdog agency. Is this a bureaucratic nightmare in the making? Today, Zach Wiss looks into this commission and shares an example of the good work they do using Cuba as a case in point. He contrasts this good work with that of religious law enforcement, something out of the Commission's depth that may be required if the Senate bill were to pass.
2: Have you heard of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom? It's an agency of sorts, though not the kind we'd usually associate with governmental agencies. The commissioners, drawn from both political parties, serve entirely voluntarily, and the commissioner's charter is to advance the U.S. interest of religious freedom, a key liberty in our constitution around the world. An example of the commissioner's work is how it recently met the challenge of oppression of Cuban pastors. It identified a bureaucrat in Havana who made regular trips to the U.S. to go shopping and visit relatives but back home she made sure to limit cuban christian pastors from visiting the u.s the commission was able to have this person's visa withdrawn until cuban pastors are likewise able to visit the u.s it's anticipated that the ban on pastors will be lifted soon The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom's charter since its founding is exactly what its name suggests, encouraging and even taking active steps to ensure the religious freedom of people and nations where there's no right to religious freedom. That, by the way, is most places other than the U.S. The U.S. Senate, however, wants to change this charter. Senators Rubio, Menendez, Gardner, Durbin, and Coons introduced a bill that expands the commissioner's charter to monitor the abuse of religion to justify human rights violations. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, former International Religious Freedom Commissioner Christina Ariaga defends the original charter, only not wanting to see the commission become a policing mechanism for religious abuse, especially since the definition of such abuse depends on who is doing the defining. Would the commission have to discourage Hasidic separation of the genders at their religious services? Is circumcision abusive? What about a church that refuses to preside over the marriage of a homosexual couple? Is that abusive? What's more, expanding the charter in a way to turn the commission's original mission into a policing mechanism of religious practice places on its shoulders, even if indirectly, a kind of religious law enforcement in nations where abusive religious practices need to be curtailed by local authorities, not a voluntary mission trying to advance religious freedom. Would the commission be responsible for how Muslim women are treated in certain Islamic sects, whether Roman Catholic clergy with a record of child abuse be swiftly brought to justice, or whether parents who discipline their children by spanking them out of religious conviction be prosecuted? Commissioner Ariaga rightly anticipates a bureaucratic nightmare not only because of the broad net the commission would be expected to cast and bring up, then case by case have to individually examine and deliberate over, but because of the difficulty of categorically defining abuse across various cultures. We all know abuse when we see it. But if actions or behaviors are broadly defined, the definition of abuse can become a slippery slope that may even lead to nullifying the commission's original mission of encouraging and, where possible, protecting religious freedom. After an outcry from commission members and others, the senators have pulled the bill for now. We know most clearly from recent Supreme Court cases that freedom of religion, though enshrined in our Constitution, does not sit well with many societal innovators. They view religious freedom as an unnecessary form of exception, processing in what they'd otherwise like to see as a homogeneously secular social order. The senator's bill doesn't promote that directly, but it does distract a key organization whose charter is to protect religious freedom from doing its job by giving it something to do that it wasn't designed to take on, and by this, having it enter into political battles it wasn't designed to take on either. Religious freedom does have its advocates as well as its nemeses. President Trump's speech to the U.N. comes to mind, as does Mike Pompeo's recent gathering of pastors dedicated to the cause. Other alliances are also forming, including in other nations. And that's a good thing.
3: Time now for This Week in History. December eleventh, 1936. King for less than a year, Edward VIII abdicates. He is the first British monarch to do so. Having lost his heart to Baltimore socialite Wallace Simpson, he chooses love over his crown. As head of the Church of England, Edward could not marry a divorcee. Thus his brother ascends to the throne as King George VI. December 12, 1901 The Morse code signal for the letter S travels by radio from Cornwall, England, to Newfoundland, Canada. It is the first radio transmission to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Marconi, radio pioneer and physicist, is successful in proving to his detractors that radio waves are not limited by the curvature of the Earth. December 13, 1937. Nanking, the capital of China, falls to the imperial forces of Japan. Japanese General Iwane orders the city destroyed, and what would become known as the Rape of Nanking begins. As many as 150,000 male civilians are brutally murdered and over 20,000 women and girls raped in the coming days. Following the end of the war, Iwane will be executed for war crimes. That was This Week in History, Events as man recorded them, as God ordained them.
0: That's our program for this week. Thanks for joining us. Holding All Things Together is a production of Redeemer Broadcasting, and the views expressed are those of the participants. If you'd like to contact us for any reason, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is ministry at org. For Holding All Things Together, I'm Dan Elmendorf.
3: And I'm Cal Carter. God willing,
0: see you next week.